We're going to be going to the book of Acts again this morning, Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. If you have a Bible there, you're able to look at. I'm curious, um, how many of you brought your Acts journal this morning? Just hold it up. Okay, there are a lot of them out there. It's very, very, very encouraging. Keep it up. Good. If you don't have one of these, if you're a guest with us, encourage you to go by way of the um, the hub this morning, uh, which is our info hub out there. If you turn in a communication card, you get a packet of stuff, including one of these Acts journals. Love to have you get one today. It's it's a Bible on the one side, and then place for notes for your own Bible studies, as well as if you're a sermon note taker, which make all pastors really happy. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6 in a moment. In 1959, a junior senator from Massachusetts presented a, a striking speech. It was actually a speech. His name was John F. Kennedy. And this junior senator of Massachusetts was talking about the, the growing threat of the Soviet Union as they were having their very significant military buildup, nuclear weaponry, uh, Soon after this, they would put those weapons in Cuba, which would create the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, just two years after this speech was made. But as he made this speech, he was highlighting the importance of America being armed and ready for potential global conflict. And he used a term that was striking. He said the word crisis in Chinese is composed of two characters one which represents danger, the other which represents opportunity. And he was presenting that any crisis presents both things. I remember a few years ago while serving on the board of ABWE, a, a world mission organization with over a thousand missionaries, 84 countries, we were facing a very significant crisis. And we were, uh, it was soon after the, the 2008 economic downturn was affecting us financially. We had some other issues that were going on, some from the distant past that had never been resolved, and now we're coming back to really hit us. And it was, it was a very hard time. And I remember we were in a meeting, and I was in, it was the executive team. We were meeting with the president and the senior leadership. And I remember somebody prayed this prayer, God, don't let us waste the crisis. Crisis has with it danger, but it also has opportunity, especially to the child and children of God. There in first century Jerusalem, the Christians, after somewhere two to four years of existing together since Pentecost, were facing a crisis. It's recorded in Acts chapter 6. It is not the first thing that the early Jesus followers have had thrown at them. As a matter of fact, a few weeks ago, we mentioned that when we moved into Acts chapter 4, Acts 4 through 7 is actually the empire striking back. Chapter 1 through 3 is the establishment of the church. The, the first couple of sermons of Peter, where just thousands of people are embracing Jesus as their Messiah, as their Lord, as their Savior. And there's this growing of explosive new membership coming into the church. But in chapter four, the empire starts striking back. The empire here, meaning the spiritual empire of darkness. And we've seen a variety of things 
that have been done and a variety of formats in which that opposition has come. We've seen intimidation. In Acts chapter 4, we saw that Peter and John, as they were speaking with a guy they had healed uh, in the temple temple confines and have now been brought into the religious leaders because they don't like that. They keep talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. Well, Jesus is the guy that these religious leaders put to death. And they warned them there. They draw a line in the sand. They threatened them. And they said, if you keep preaching in this guy's name, you will be specifically going against our standard and our requirements for you. Now the die is cast. They continue to preach. We see a second methodology that is recorded by Luke is in Acts chapter 5. And this is infiltration. In this case, there was a prominent couple in the church, a wealthy couple, who both sought recognition and influence and darkness, infiltrated the church through their pride and their greed and their deception and their self-ambition, wanting to get praise and recognition even for a, a, a spiritual work. God, in both of these first two cases, the, the intimidation to the disciples, God protects them and gives them boldness to continue preaching. God uh, protects the church from the, the, the dangerous malignancy of self-ambition and greed and pride that was manifested in the spirit of Ananias and Sapphira as that was infiltrating the church. We see in the passage that Jared preached last week, Pastor Jared, in the end of chapter 5, inf- intimidation again, as now all of the apostles, all 12 of them, have been preaching and preaching about Jesus, and they're all arrested at once, and they're brought in before the religious leaders, and this time, they don't just threaten them. They talk about killing them. And finally, Gamaliel, a, a, a wise uh, uh, rabbi, leader of Israel, actually talks about the sovereignty of God. And it does a beautiful statement. It says, if this thing's of God, we don't want to be against it. If this thing's not of God, it's going to blow away. It's interesting that Gamaliel was the discipler of the apostle Paul. It's possible Paul was in some of these meetings as Saul. If he wasn't there, he certainly was getting an eyewitness account from Gamaliel all the time. But Gamaliel says, let him go. So they do let him go, but not before they've beaten him. And told all 12 of, the, 12 of them uh, upon threat of their lives that things are only going to get worse if they don't start muzzling this preaching ministry of theirs. So we've seen intimidation in a couple of ways. We've seen infiltration. And now we find a, another methodology, conflict and distraction. In Acts chapter 6, we see a crisis over the lack of care within the early church community. It is another attempt to, 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 to deflect a heart passion for Christ going forward in the early church as the devil seeks to, again, the, the empire is attempting to stop the church going forward. I'd like to read to you the account of what happens here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out for among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Lord, we gather here, and we think of our own lives individually, as families, as a church community, and God, none of us have been spared from crisis. There are many people right now in the sound of my voice that feel in crisis. So, Lord, we surely want to learn from this narrative about what you have to teach us about how you build your church and how you see your people through crisis, but we also want to learn how you build us as people and how you lead us through crises. Lord, teach us this morning, I pray. May we better love Christ because of our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The crisis that the church was presented with did have a potential danger, but it also had a potential opportunity Let's look how it unfolds. First of all, we find the crisis in verse 1. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What caused the problem here was a result of the fact that there were two groups of Jews within the early church community. There were two groups of Jews within Jerusalem. He talks about here the Hebrews, and he talks about the Hellenists. These were both Jewish groups. You see, everybody that became a part of the early church were Jews until later on. We'll see the change take place, notably in, ch in chapter 8 through 10. But here we find that there were these two groups of, 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 of individuals, of Jews that have become believers, have their own stuff with each other. And it's a result of probably, certainly not intentional, but unintentional oversight. There was a group called the Helen. I'll first, first talk about the Hebrews. The Hebrews were the people that had lived, they, they were the lifers in Jerusalem. They were the lifer uh, Israeli Jews, if you will, lived in the nation of Israel, the land of Israel. They were individuals that spoke Aramaic. Aramaic is a, a, a variant. Um, it, it is a dialect of Hebrew. And they spoke that language. That's what they talked. That, that was their primary language. They might have known other language. They might have known Greek. Most of them did not. Some of them would. But they spoke Aramaic, and, and that's how their synagogue worship took place. There was another group of Jews that lived in Jerusalem at this time called the Hellenists. We'll see them later. As a matter of fact, 
they're going to be the ones at, at times that are going to be the most vociferous in their hatred of the Apostle Paul. It's because he was one of them. He was a Hellenist Jew. He was a Jew that came outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. He was actually from the area of Turkey, and, and he had uh, modern-day Turkey, and he had come down. He was a Greek speaker. Now, he also knew Hebrew. He was trained. Uh, he was a very learned man. But the native language of Hellenist Jews was Greek. The striking thing is that there were Greek-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem, and there were Aramaic-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem. We even see one later in this chapter that, that most believe is referring to one of the Hellenistic Jews called the, the Synagogue of the Freemen. But here we find that what's taking place is an outgrowth of two communities being merged into one. You can understand the, the distinction in the backgrounds. I mean, imagine these families. You're a, you're a Hebrew family. You're a family that speaks Aramaic. Your ancestry goes back to living in the land for generations. You worship with people that speak like you, that, that know the land like you, that know the culture, that have the same cultural background as you. You do synagogue worship. The educational system of the day for all of the kids was through the synagogues. So all the kids grow up with the same Aramaic-speaking Jews. That's their people. That's their culture. Then there's another culture within Jerusalem. They're Greek-speaking Jews. They're Jews. But they grow up together, and they do school together, and they do worship together, and they do life together. And now all of a sudden, some of these folk and some of these folk have embraced Jesus as the Messiah. He's become their Lord and Savior, and they're flocking to the meetings in Solomon's porch, and they're, they're flocking to these, these home meetings, and, but their backgrounds are really different. And what's happened is, whereas in the synagogue, the widows would be financially cared for by the community, well, they're not a part of those communities as their primary relationships anymore. In many cases, they've been pushed out. And the Greeks, excuse me, the Hebrew-speaking ones, they're people who, who, these are widows who have, I mean, they have generations in the land. We don't know exactly what caused the oversight, why this group of widows was, was financially cared for by the early church. We know how they were cared for, because we're told at the end of Acts chapter 4 that all the money ran through the apostles. That in Acts chapter 4, people brought their money, placed it at the foot of the apostles. And the apostles then were trusted and, and were worthy of trust to disseminate the money. Now, they went with the people they knew. I, it, this is a... This is a this is a wild and woolly environment, right? I mean, there's new faces coming all the time. It says here in verse 1, it's multiplying. It's growing. There's people that the apostles don't know. I mean, there's thousands of people. And some of them are widows. Well, they, they, everybody that's connected is apparently getting cared for. But this group, much smaller group, much less connection even to the land and to the culture and to, to the temple, 
they've now been disenfranchised from who they did have. And they're out there and, and they're sort of drifting a little bit and nobody's really caring for them, especially for their widows. And they're concerned about it, understandably. And it was a big deal. Because that's how these people, these, these widows would be cared for, how they'd be fed. They didn't have jobs, usually. They didn't have livelihoods. They may not have had a lot of family support. They had been cared for by their individual synagogue. Now, caring for widows is pretty important. James, who's going to be head of the Jerusalem church, wrote in his first letter, and in his letter, which one of the, was one of the first two letters written in the New Testament, he said, here's what pure religion is in James 1.27. It's you take care of the widows and the orphans. So this mattered. So we've got a, we got a crisis. And the crisis presented a danger. And the danger, obviously, the most immediate danger, is that these women would not be cared for. But the danger went beyond the widows. The danger went to the health of the entire community and the entire witness of the early church in two ways, I would suggest. One, the danger was that they were creating an us-them environment. Isn't it? it says in verse 1, there was a complaint by the Hellenists that arose against the Hebrews. The word complaint here is used in 2 Corinthians 10, 20, 10, where the apostle Paul is reciting the wilderness wanderings, and he makes this statement, do not grumble as they did in the wilderness wanderings. The word grumble there is the exact same word. It's the verb form of this phrase, of this, of this noun, complaint. They were grumbling. They were muttering. It's interesting they didn't go to the apostles and say, hey, guys, would you look up? They, they did what we all tend to do. They went to friends. You know, the Hellenists, they're talking, hey, hey, you know, Mary's not getting, nobody's looking out for her. And, and, and there's, we know there's money coming in. We're watching guys like Barnabas selling land. And that was the whole Ananias and Sapphira thing. I mean, they gave land. There's money coming in. But our people, our women, our, our, our people of need are being overlooked. And there's the, the whispering campaign going. I don't know how vitriolic it was, but it was enough that the word that Luke, Luke chose to use was the word that carries the idea of, and it actually carries the idea of silent speaking, quiet speaking. This was not accusations that were brought to Peter and the boys, the apostles, this has done more, almost more harmful, how it's just spreading, just like it did in Israel years before. Just the muttering and the gumbling and the, and the, man, why, what's going on? I mean, no, they care about, I mean, what are we, what are we, what are we, what are you second class? So the word, the potential is great for conflict for being divided into different camps. The second danger is it would destroy, potentially, the witness, the testimony of the early church. The great influence of the early church, as we have seen already in the book of Acts, is the oneness 
that this community was able to create. We're going to see it even more as we go forward in Acts, where now you got to throw Gentiles into the pot and the astounding uh, difference of cultural background and religious background, social background that's going to be thrown. You know, Paul's Romans 14 about what do you do about meat? And first Corinthians say, what do you do about meat offered to idols? And how do you do this? And aren't we supporting the whole uh, 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 system? And all the Jews are feeling, yeah, we can't possibly eat meat like that. And all the Gentiles are saying, what? Come on. I mean, this is, we're not worshiping idols. We're just eating. He says, well, your money is gone. And that's, that's you, and you get it. And the temptation is to say, you know what? Let's just do what we've always done. The Hellenist Jews, you have your churches and we'll have our churches. Now, it's possible they had worship experiences for those that couldn't speak Aramaic. They still had them meeting for worship, but it's clear all of them were put under the community of the oversight of the apostles. All of them were doing life together. All of them were one body. And the New Testament just constantly screams that Jesus is not saying, yeah, let's have them meet Monday, you meet Tuesday, or you meet the morning, we'll be the afternoon. Let's just, let's just act as two different groups. No, there's one Savior. There's one body. There's one spirit. Work it out. Learn to love. It was one of the most powerful polemics of the early church that they learned to do the earthy stuff of coming to say, we're going to major on the majors. We're going to do life together. We're going to have different convictions, different conscious issues at times but different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds, even different language, we are going to be one. It was one of the most powerful messaging of the power of Christ to change people in the entire messaging of the book of Acts. It's why so many, I've pointed this out before, so many of the times in the book of Acts where you hear Luke recording that and, and the church grew and the church multiplied, follows where they've just worked through something. And they, he says, and they were all of one accord and they were all together. In this passage, we're going to see it again. This in verse one, it starts and says the church grew, was growing. After we deal with all this in verses two through six, he's going to say in chapter, in verse seven, the church was exploding in growth. Priests were coming to Christ. Again, it's when they came to work through issues. There was a danger here if they didn't handle this properly. They took relationships and oneness really seriously. The third thing we find is the opportunity. There was the opportunity to stay true to priorities of preaching and prayer. We see what happened here. You know, they raised a concern in verse 1. The apostles hear about it. And apparently they went, they had a confab, they processed it, they talked together, and they came back and basically said, here in verse 4, they summarized it. They said, we, we, we cannot give ourselves to serving tables. Now, the interesting thing is they were already doing that. They're saying, we just can't continue this. We can't do this. We've got to give ourselves, in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. 
This really was a salient moment in the early church. It sounds like the apostles now are doing something that will be and actually turns out to be a direction-setting moment for the church. They said, we are called to be proclaiming the word of God and to be praying. These were the two elements the whole church has been built on in these chapters. It was the sermons which comprise over one-third of the book of Acts that Luke is highlighting, saying it was the, the proclaiming of God's truth, of the gospel that people were responding to. It doesn't say, the apostles don't say, we will give ourselves to signs and wonders. We will give ourselves to, to these miraculous healings and, and, and other things that they were doing. But they say, no, it's not our ultimate calling. Our ultimate calling is to be praying and to be proclaiming truth. They even had two guys who would be authors of the New Testament that they were proclaiming, Peter and John. So why was it so vital for the church, for the apostles to say, we're not against, it's obviously they're not against caring for the widows, they're going to care for that in a beautiful way, but they're saying, we have got to give ourselves to this. We cannot be deflected from this. Why? Because God gave to the apostles the word and prayer as their life work. Because the word and prayer are the life blood of the church. This wasn't just about the apostles. This was about the entire community. Are we going to be able to value being people of prayer and being people who are, who are listening to the voice of God? There are many organizations that do wonderful things like some of those things that will take place in this passage in caring for the widows. What sets the church of Jesus apart is it is a church that is dependent upon Christ, is crying out for him in prayer, and that is ultimately its greatest gift is proclaiming truth. We'll see there is the, the, the continual marriage of caring compassionately for people, but these guys recognize that the devil's primary desire is always to get the people of God and therefore the, the, the pastors of God, if you will, to direct them from the primary calling because these two elements are the primary need of every believer. No believer can grow or thrive or be healthy without the word of God and prayer. So the distractions that are presented are always presented to deflect both spiritual leadership from that not that all leaders need to make that their priority calling, but those that have that priority calling, there's always going to be the attempt to try to deflect them and distract them from that and to distract the people of the community from imbibing those two realities in their own lives. So I was talking to a guy this uh, recently who was went away for a couple of day retreat, uh, just felt he needed to hear from God, and it was interesting talking to him, and he said, you know, he went, he went to a place, he didn't know one person there. He ate by himself uh, in the dining place. It was a retreat. And, and, but 
And so he's totally alone. It was beautiful. And so he had this time and all he had with him was his Bible and he said, and, and his phone. And he said, I was there. And he said, I kept trying to get started and listening. And he said, I, there was always something that I was on my phone about. He said, I found myself removing apps, getting rid of this social media app. Getting rid of, he's uninstalling all these apps. Why? He's just a picture of how distracted we are. I, I remember a guy from our community group a few years ago went down and got, got in the, got to go to the masters one of the days. And, and he said the most powerful experience for me, at least one of the most powerful experiences was not only the, the pageantry and, 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 you know, the beauty of the grounds and, and, and watching the golfers. It was just having a whole day where my cell phone was off because they require that. We are so regularly, consistently distracted. This was the methodology they were trying to use. Let's distract the apostles. And we're going to look at it in a moment, why it was hard to not get distracted. Many of you have read books by Stephen Covey, uh, uh, The Seven, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But one of the things he talks about in there is, is putting the first things into our lives first. And I, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, so I'm not going to belabor it. But what he talks about, he, talk, he tells the story of a college professor, apparently a real college professor at one time, a philosophy professor, was trying to show the importance of building in first things first in your life. And you've heard this illustration, some of you have, where the professor just took a big jar, a glass jar, and uh, he first put in rocks, you know, like two-inch rocks, and he filled the thing up, and he says, it's a jar full. And they all looked and said, yeah. And he said, okay. And then he brought out some pebbles and he poured the pebbles in and sort of shook it around. And all these pebbles, they, there was room for the pebbles. And they says, they're full. And they're not quite as sure, but this looks full. He says, okay. And he shakes it a little bit. And, and then he brings in some sand and he pours sand and sand is able to find its way around the pebbles and around the stone. He says, now is it full? Well, they thought, okay, nothing. Then of course he took water and he poured water and, and all these things have gone into this thing. And what he said is, if I reverse that and I put in the other elements and then I tried to add the rocks, I could never get them in. And yet the rocks in our lives are the biggest and most important thing. They're the biggest things for us. They're our priorities. And he says, you have to put them in first because you probably won't be able to add them just as an extra along the way no matter how important they may seem to you. I've, I've, I'm sure every pastor in our church has heard this illustration from me. I've shared it with other pastors many times. It was a meaningful quote to me. Was, uh, I think it was Philip Brooks once said, when you're in the ministry, when you're, when, if you're someone that's going to be handling the word of God, you have to be immersing yourself in the scripture. You can't just be studying, uh, oh, I'm, I'm speaking this, this Wednesday, so I've got five days, I gotta start. He said, there's two ways of doing ministry. One way is to live like a conduit, where basically you're getting the information and it's flowing and it comes out. He said, the other way is a reservoir. 
where you have a reservoir of truth and it's when you speak or when you teach, it, it spills over, but you haven't exhausted the reservoir. I can tell you I've done both. And there is nothing more draining and emptying than to feel like I just shot all the spiritual reserves I have in that sermon. But when I've been speaking out of a reservoir where God is speaking into my life separate from what I'm preaching, my life, it overflows. I'm not going to walk out of here after this sermon feel like, oh, I'm, I got nothing left. Now I got, now I got to start up. No, the, the reservoir... The reality is these, these apostles saying, we've got to give ourselves to this. We, we, not, we didn't need to just prepare a sermon. We've got to give ourselves to the word that, that, the, that our speaking is flowing out of a reservoir of truth. We've got to be devoted to the scripture. Now, they're not saying everybody in the congregation at, 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 at Jerusalem had to do that. But they're saying we do. Because what is a life work for us is life blood for our people. So we've got to preserve that. The other thing they said, we've got to be people that are crying out to God. We've got to be people that live casting our cares, as 1 Peter 5 says, and as I always say to you, that that you have one, two options. You can be the humble man of 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7, where it says, we show our humility by casting our cares on God. Or you can be the proud man. And by inference, we show our pride by carrying our cares. The apostle said, We've got so much we've got to give to the Lord. We've got so many people that we are feeling the weight of and the burden for. We've got to be devoted to prayer. The rocks for these men was being a building a reservoir of truth within their lives that was spilling out in their preaching and devoting themselves to crying out to God. I would suggest to you the rocks for you as a believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is also to be in the word and to be speaking to God in prayer. Even if it is not for preaching or teaching, you're doing it for surviving in your spiritual journey. So one of the things that was an outgrowth of the decision they made was it enabled them to keep the priority of the word and prayer. But I just want to say this. This wasn't easy. I want you to come with me and imagine yourself in that community. And I, I, I would guess the apostles, if they didn't hear this messaging, they heard it in their head. Something like this. You know, we're hearing these widows and they have been neglected. And we have been caring for the, you know, we've been, we do care for Martha and Joan and, and, you know, all 12 of us. And we have, people have our ear and we've been caring for those, those gals. And now we're finding out that there's a, there's a whole part of our community that we have neglected. Don't you think somebody would have felt, you know, it'd be so wonderful now if the apostles would just say, you know what, we're sorry. We're now going to show our value of you. We're going to pour our lives into your women as well. 
Or if you were one of those Hellenists, you don't think somebody felt something like this? Wait a minute. You're going to appoint other people to do this after you've been doing this with the Hebrew gals? We don't get one apostle? I mean, just give us a, give us a Thaddeus. Nobody even knows who he is. I mean, give us somebody. They didn't get anybody. So these, I, I would, I can't imagine the apostles didn't think, ah, it's going to be hard. Not everybody's going to understand. Not everybody's going to get it. It's good. How are we going to really say we really do value these women? We're, yeah, we're going to appoint guys and they'll get good guys, but we're not giving them what we gave to others. I'm saying that to say this. Living by priorities is hard. Living by the rocks, putting the rocks in is costly. There's going to be people you let down. There's going to be things that are not understood. There's going to be potential voices that if they're not theirs, you're going to hear them yours. But the beauty of these apostles was they listened to the voice that needed to be loudest. And they responded in a way that enabled them actually to care for these women in the best way. But it came by these guys being willing to say, we have to follow the voice of God's call upon us. We got to get the rocks in. We got to do it first. So do you. So do I. The other thing it did was it strengthened a network of compassionate ministry. They said, choose seven men to oversee the work of caring for these, these Greek-speaking widows. It's interesting here in this passage that Luke refers to the disciples, the apostles, as the twelve. First time they were ever called that way. And it's interesting that later, when he's referring to Philip, it says he is, he is Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. You know, it's, it's, it's these two guys, you know, like the Magnificent Seven. Well, that was them. These were the Magnificent Seven of the early church. These were the ones that were appointed as the first deacons, if you will. It was a new role, and it was born out of necessity, led by the Spirit of God. It's interesting that the role is not actually defined. They knew that they, the, it initially was to care for the, the widow's care, but they had lots of other things. Matter of fact, Stephen and Philip, two of these of the seven, are going to fill up chapter seven and chapter eight of Acts in their preaching and ministry, uh, public ministry. So they did more. The role of deacon is nowhere in the New Testament clearly defined. It simply means servant. They became what the church needed in order for the apostles, later elders, pastors, to do the work that they were called to do. And that will change. I mean, I've, I've been here a long time. I've been here when we had 14 folks in a Bible study. For me, when we started the church and, and got up to about 45 people and had our first deacon, or maybe it was 65, um, the deacons were my co-laborers. And we did ministry together. We processed everything together. These guys gave up incredible amount of time, early morning meetings, everything. As time went on, the role became 
uh, more care related to having care groups than we had community groups. And right now our deacons function much more of, of a role of oversight, more of a, a, a what we would think of as lay elder type of role, but they are functioning in, in oversight of, of, of finances, of care. We, we are accountable to them as pastors, but the role changes. It, it, it's, it's fluid and it was fluid from the beginning. They served a specific function. All right, last thing, the impact. Verse 1 I mentioned, it says the disciples were increasing in number. In verse 2 through 6, they highlight what the early church focused on. One, the passionate preaching of the Word of God. And secondly, the compassionate care for the practical needs of people. The result is in verse 7. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I, I am not a regular on social media. I'm a dabbler. Um, but even dabbling, I, I know that the next generation, and my next generation is maybe the next next generation, looks largely negatively towards the church culturally. The squabbles, the, the interpretation that many in the church uh, trust more in politics than God, are more concerned about being right than being kind, and I'm just saying this is perceptual, are harmful and, and barriers. But the one thing that is, I think, continually held up against the church, and I mean the evangelical church, is this. The church exists to serve itself. The most impactful ministries are when the church is investing resources, time, energy, money into others without expecting returns. It's beautiful, and we didn't plan it this way, but we talked about the refugee ministry. To me, a gospel-centered ministry where we are praying and pleading with God to have opportunity to build relationships, to lead people to Jesus, but even if it doesn't, just caring for people. I think it has a messaging to it. It isn't why we're doing it. That isn't why they cared for the widows. It's just the result. Even a watching world looks at the church caring compassionately for people and sees something that is compelling. They aren't just concerned about themselves. It happened here in the book of Acts. I'd like to pray, and then we're going to close our service in a certain way this morning. Lord, we come to you. God, there's so much about this passage that is a deep passion to me. I believe in proclaiming the scriptures. I want to continue to grow in my own prayer life till the day I die. I also believe, Lord, in the beauty of the body, being willing to fight through differences, different convictions, different perspectives, different stance, to be one body, to give the polemic that Jesus really is the one that brings a people of one accord, of one mind, 
So, Lord, continue to teach us how to do that as a people. In Jesus' name, amen. Ministry that we're going to commission this morning, and I believe Joanna, who is, who's going to be, you're going to be talking? Okay, come on up. And I'm going to invite uh, Kathy Sedley and Joanna to come up with me, if they would, along with the Stephen Minister team that just got trained, if you would come up at this time as well. Our Stephen Ministry is a one-on-one ministry that we do here in the body. There are over 40 ministers that we have that have been trained and assigned who are caring and one-on-one relationships with people in the congregation and community. It's an amazing group of people. Um, a long time ago, God gave us a vision for in the care ministry of uh, saying we're, our job is not to end suffering. God uses suffering, but to make sure that by God's grace, we would strive to say that no one needs to suffer alone. These are people that have received over 50 hours of training, have read an unbelievable amount of books and material over the last weeks. And Joanna Candy and Kathleen Sedley have led this team of people in this training for these weeks ahead. And very simply, we call our Stephen ministers the after people. After the phone call you hoped you'd never get, after the funeral when everyone has left and emotions you've held at bay came crashing in on you, after the relationship falls apart and the bottom falls out of your life, after the doctor says, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do, after the gavel come down, the handcuffs go on and your loved one is led the way, after the baby arrives, demanding more of you than you dreamed possible, after you find a pink slip with your final paycheck, after your family and friends have heard your story one too many times, but you still need to talk it out. These are people who are willing, trained, and desiring to walk towards need, a something that is not an easy situation, but something that they delight to do. I'm going to go ahead and read the names of these dear people, and then we will commission them. So you hear your name, come on up. This is Janet Rifkin. Dan Sedley. Linda Longo. Patricia Barner. Rich De Pasquale, Pam De Pasquale, Unrelated. No, I'm not just kidding. They're married. Sue Ann Bryan, Sue Jones, Kathy Walker. Anna Muni and Mary Ellen Underwood.
Won't you pray with me? Father, we're scared of our own needs. If we're honest, we don't like them. We don't want them. Even though they're the very vehicles that you use, our grief, our crosses to carry, our lonelinesses, our insecurities, our painful life circumstances, they're the very vehicles of grace that we have learned to know and understand you. When it comes to others' needs, we're often intimidated, not knowing what to do, what to say, wanting to help, but not knowing exactly how. Thank you for an incredible group of people that have done training, have put in time, effort, prayer, and their own life story to raise their hand to say, I'm willing to walk towards those in need. We honor you for the gift of these people and the team that they join to be reaching out to those in our church and community because we believe what it means to be human is to embrace our need and embrace our need of you and our need of one another. We give these people to you and the ministry they will do. In Jesus' name, amen. May God help you to be a listener of his work and be a caster of your curse. May he lead you to be generous-hearted to those in need around you. May your rocks be inserted first this week and your eyes and heart open to the needs of people. Now go in peace to love, serve, and enjoy the Lord.